Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hey Dave. Yeah Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear and t-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cosy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Introducing Wondersweep from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard. But now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. It's going to hit record. Maybe, can you, can you say your name and uh, your favorite flavor of ice cream? Oh my goodness, my name is Ariane Shireen and my favourite flavour of ice cream is chocolate. And I could also do coffee quite happily. I'm not so into vanilla really, unless we're talking about sex, in which case... Very <laughs> <laughs> <Made> bad joke. <laughs> yeah, it's fine, I have a lot of friends who are into very vanilla sex and that's, that's totally their call. I'm not per- into <laughs> Personally I'm not, but that's a different issue. <laughs> I can't believe we're going to sex already. This is terrible. No, that's fine. Um, what what kind of sex are you interested in? <laughs> <laughs> let's let's start there and, and build up. Oh my up. god! <laughs> um, this is why you must never make jokes with. <laughs> <laughs> um, what kind of sex am I interested in? Any sex at the moment because I haven't had any for ages. <laughs> I'm not overly fussy right now, but I would never date a comedian. Oh, uh, same, but why? Have you dated one before? Yes. Okay, yeah. And you just don't want to be going to gigs and avoiding people. That's not why I wouldn't. Oh. I don't mind. I like awkward, so I don't mind that. I just can't be asked with them anymore because I don't... They're not... I've not met one yet who it is worth the effort of putting up with because we're all quite neurotic and insecure and, sure. stuff. and, I, and I'm I, I'd like it that the other person isn't that just right, so, that, right, so right. that one of us is normal okay. do you know what I mean yeah okay but then I don't know there's something to do with uh, two comics understanding the other person's lifestyle and being like for instance John who I'm not going out with and is never going out with <laughs> John Fleming by John the way. Fleming just, who just I'm, I'm not going is. out with but um, what's really nice is why when not he, He's lovely. He is, but, you know, he's also 30 years older than me. And he's really lovely. He's really, he's, like, pretty much the nicest person I've ever met. And he's so kind. He's so, so, (laughs) (laughs) he's so generous. And um, so he's looking after my daughter, as you've seen. He's looking Mm -hmm. after her right now, so I can do this podcast. And when I go out to a gig, he says, okay, so I'll expect you back sort of midnight one-ish. Whereas, you know, your average yeah. person would be like, oh, um, so what time are you on? And if I was like, oh, 8.30, okay, so you'll be back at 10. And it's like, well, it doesn't really work like that. And so obviously he understands the business mm-hmm. and, you know, it'd be nice to find somebody who understood it, but 
wasn't actually a comedian. Yeah, yes. I mean, I had a friend of mine who dated an agent for a while, mm-hmm. and I, and I believe that was that was okay. But I don't, I don't, I wouldn't do that either. I just, okay. I, I just, I, I, there's something about pooping where you eat. That, do you know what I mean? <laughs> what kind of sex are you having? <laughs> <laughs> no, we're talking, we're talking about the relationship side now. No, but you know what I mean. It's like it's seeing dating someone in the industry I just I couldn't I don't think I could do it and I think okay. dating a comedian plus I've not met one yet that, that you know I, like I fancy but it's like I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm so past the whole right they're physically hot that's enough okay, yeah. thing and yeah. I just need them to be someone that I can actually talk to for hours and hours and it's cool and, yeah. do you know what I mean yeah. and, I, and as much as I can chat to them it's not like that so okay. and, I, and also or if it is it's friend stuff Okay. You know what I mean? Yeah, no, that sounds fair enough. Hello, and welcome to the Ask the Industry podcast, episode 63. For those of you new to the show, my name's Simon Kane, and this is the podcast where I interview the most influential people from the worlds of stand-up, comedy, radio, and today, TV. Ariane Shireen is a TV writer by trade, and has got her start at one of the BBC competitions, and has since gone on to write on many, many different types of shows, from sitcoms to children's TV shows to everything in between, really. She then started performing stand-up comedy and left it. After episode 62, where we had a discussion with lots of influential people from the Edinburgh Fringe and the subject of mentorship came up, I found it really interesting to find that in TV for the select few, there is mentorship, but for comedians, there's very few opportunities for that, at least as far as I'm aware. If I'm wrong about that, please do send me enough information because I'd be very interested to know, outside of courses, where there's options for comedians to get any form of mentorship. Mentorship. I found her. I found her story about how and why she quit stand-up due to her worries and fears of losing TV work as a writer. Really interesting, especially how she overcame that to come back and start performing again. My my favourite part of this pod was when we got down to the nitty-gritty of what she actually wants from life and her goals and how they are polar opposites to mine and how we both think we can get what we want from stand-up. I won't say too much because she says it a lot better than I do in the podcast, but for me that was a really interesting chat. If you're enjoying this podcast, please do remember to subscribe and if you you would like to follow along all the questions are available with timestamps at simonkane.co.uk without any more delays this is ariane shireen apparently i've heard that there's some kind of rule in comedy where if two comedians are dating and one of them breaks up with the other the person who has been dumped gets the right to any material about that relationship see is, is that legally binding like if <laughs> <laughs> I want it to be. I doubt that very much. <laughs> <laughs> Nat Lutzema and I can't remember which one from Jigsaw, they broke up and they both did separate shows about their relationship oh, wow. the same year. Right, right. Yeah. And I, I went to see Nat's because it was on the free fringe and mm-hmm. then in it she mentioned the other show and I looked it up and it was like 12 quid for the other show and I was like, I'm paying 12 quid to hear his side of this. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like, so I took her side just because I couldn't be bothered to hear his. <laughs> That's brilliant. And I think that's quite nice if you can come out of a relationship and feel like, yeah, I'm going to plug the other person's show, then it got to be kind of amicable to an extent, no? Maybe. I think it was more, I did some Googling because <laughs> you said they worked together and it was on an interview. I was just being creepy, as, as always. Let's, let's move on. You, we were talking before this about mm-hmm. how you started in stand-up. Yeah. You did it for six months. Yeah. Got to the final of an award. Which yeah. one? Uh, Laughing Horse. Laughing Horse. Yeah. And then didn't turn up. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, 
Oh, this is so embarrassing. But I was really scared of getting a bad review, and I knew Steve Bennett was going to be reviewing. And Steve Bennett is really, really nice. He's lovely. And um, he's, you know, I'm sure that he would not have wanted me to give up. But uh, basically, I thought, well, I'm working in telly, and producers are going to Google me. And if the first thing they find is... You know, Ariane Shireen's a comedian and is woefully unfunny, then they might not hire me to work on their shows. So I did what I thought was the right thing, although it was a painful thing to do, and gave up. As in gave up stand-up or gave up the competition? Gave up st- right, because to, to me, to get to the final of a competition, yes, it's quite subjective, and yes, certain competitions are tailored to different types of comedians and vice versa. But to get to a final, to me, looks good even if you got a bad review. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. But I I guess I was, you, you know, TV writing is very hard to get into. And mm. it is, it was basically my livelihood at the time, uh, whereas stand-up wasn't. You know, I was making the odd tenor here and there. <laughs> whereas with uh, television, <laughs> you know, you get paid quite a lot for working on scripts. And I... Yeah, I I made a stupid decision and I wish I hadn't made that. But at the same time, I don't regret it because uh, I have my daughter and I would never have my daughter if I hadn't made that decision. So Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Did you go on like a date that night instead or something? <laughs> no, <laughs> no. I um, So I became a scriptwriter and then I moved into journalism and then I met uh, well my editor at The Guardian uh, I fell in love with him and he is my daughter's father okay yeah. right that makes sense fair enough then and so let's let's just go with stand-up for one sec then okay so six months in stand-up yeah earn the odd tenor here and there yeah that is quite quick to be getting any money in terms of the circuit now was it a case of you had like you you had sort of contacts from TV or you just pushed yourself quite hard in that time? And what was, what was the need to go into... St- or not need, but what was the reasoning of going into stand-up seeing as you were already an established TV writer? A lot of comedians go the other way where they you know, become a comedian to become in TV or whatever. Well, uh, I went into stand-up just because... Uh, it seemed like a really fun thing to do. I'd done a music degree, and I love writing songs, really love writing songs, but I thought that I'd probably end up on a cruise ship rather than uh, on top of the pops, which doesn't exist anymore, but it did when I was <laughs> doing my degree. Anyhow, so I decided for my work experience to go and write for the, well, go and work for the NME for work experience. Ended up writing for the magazine, doing a few reviews for them. Then I applied for a competition. I sent in an entry to a BBC competition, the uh, BBC Talent New Sitcom Writers Award, uh, with my first script. I'd never written a script before, and I ended up coming runner-up. I think, yes, it was after that that I decided to uh, start stand-up. I think it was because I was aware that I missed doing music, and because I missed writing songs and performing. So I thought it being a musical comic kind of combined all the things that I love. And to answer your question about paid gigs, I can't quite remember, but it might literally have been sort of one tenor, two tenors. Mm. Whereas this time, I 
got oh I think I got my first paid gig after I think it was my seventh gig back on the circuit after about two weeks which was Al Carraway's Old Ram Brewery oh the Brewery, laughs. La laughs. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> yeah La Laughs the, mm. yeah that's much easier to say yeah, than yeah, Old yeah. Ram Brewery yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, anyhow uh, and it was such a fun gig and it was so lovely and it really kind of made me think yeah I love this and I wish I'd never given it up but again my daughter so you mm. know but did you did you have to give up stand up to not do the competition? No, I figured that if I gained any measure of success, then I would be reviewed. And back then, Chortle was sort of the only. It was really the only dedicated comedy site, um, the only one I'd heard of anyway. I'd kind of, sort of fallen out with somebody who knew Steve Bennett, and I wasn't really sure. I, I mean, you know, now looking back on it, it's preposterous because when I came back to stand up, I actually met with Steve Bennett, had a cup of tea and pitched him the column that he's now running on Shortle, which is Adventures of a Stand Up Comic and it's the edited digest of the email that I send out every week about my adventures in stand up. And he was so nice and he was so lovely and it's like you know, I'm sure that he would never ever have wanted me to give up or known that's why I gave up or, you know. So yeah, it's ridiculous. Um, but so often when you face a fear it kind of goes away. You, yeah. you, you discovered that perspective has made it not as fear, as worrying as it could have been. Yeah. yeah, and also I don't write for telly anymore, so <laughs> okay. it kind of didn't really... I mean, of course I'd love to get a good review from him because I care about what he thinks, but, <laughs> you know, hopefully the first time I'll get reviewed from him will be my Edinburgh show. And, yeah, that'll be nice because it'll be a review based on a full hour rather than a review based on sort of mm. ten minutes. Yeah, I know, the, the, the difference between the two is, is massive, and I, I think... I mean, I don't know. I've, I've been meaning to talk to some promoters about this, whether they want a review from another promoter from a set that you do in a club yeah. or whether you want a review for an hour that you've done because, you know, they're not booking hours. So sure. do you know what I mean? Of course, yeah, yeah. So it's kind of interesting in that respect. So when did you start working in TV? So I started working in TV in uh, 2000 and. Three, I came second in the competition in 2002. Then I was put on a BBC scheme where I was mentored by uh, Jane Dawsey, who was the executive producer of uh, a show called The Story of Tracy Beaker, which is the Jacqueline Wilson adaptation. So I did that scheme and then I eventually got to write an episode of Tracy Beaker. And then I got put on Two Pints of Lager and a Packet of Crisps. And around the same kind of time, I was asked to write for Countdown. So I wrote the opening material for Countdown for three, four years? Three years, three years. Okay. And prior to that, what were you doing? So prior to that, I was doing my university degree. Oh, so you came straight out of university, wrote a script at the end of university or like when you were in it? Wrote a script at the end, yeah. Yeah. Okay. And so... Do you remember that? So you were like 22, 23 at this point? I was 21. 21? Yeah. Come out of university. Next year after that, you entered the BBC competition. Um, no, I entered the BBC competition um, the June that I uh, graduated. Okay. Yeah, so 2002. Because I'm just trying to work out how you went from music degree to wanting to write. Like, was there just an idea in your head that you thought, I want to get out, I'll send it off? Or So basically, I've always thought that the more stuff you can do, the better. And... <laughs> 
um, as you know, because you do the podcast yeah. and you do all kinds of things mm. and all kinds of writing, I imagine, and mm. stand up. And, um, and I just think that it makes life interesting and more varied and more fun. Mm. Um, so I didn't really want to commit. I mean, Okay, I wanted to be a pop star. But part of the reason I wanted to be a pop star is because you get to, if you're not just a puppet, if you actually have autonomy over your career, you get to, I mean, imagine you're, I don't know, um, Taylor Swift. Okay. Yeah. Can you see yourself as Taylor Swift, Simon? I can, I'm, yeah. I'm very, every day. Yeah, oh, good. Yeah, I thought so. <laughs> I channel so. her. <laughs> so if you're Taylor Swift, I'm sure you have um, a great degree of uh, autonomy over pretty much everything, over the songs you write, over your touring schedule, over the design of your artwork, um, the photos, over the, the videos that you make, over, you know, a great array of things. And if Taylor Swift wanted to write a novel, it would get snapped up. Up. Hmm. doesn't even matter what it was about it could be about you know the best and worst poos i've done by taylor swift and it would still that's my idea <laughs> <laughs> it would still be number one in the charts forever i think you know being a pop star is possibly the best job in the world but you know second to that is possibly being a musical comic because you still get to do all that stuff albeit on a much lower scale <laughs> I, I get what you mean i I don't know if I necessarily agree if that's all right. Okay, that's fine. Because if I... So say I was Taylor Swift Mm -hmm. and I wanted to write a novel. Yeah. I would want to write it under a separate name. Okay. I wouldn't want to coast on the Taylor Swift brand for that. Mm -hmm. Just because I I don't... I don't know. Unless it was like... If it was an autobiography or something like that, or if it was like a how I, you know, got to where I am type thing. So I think uh, Frank Turner, for example, he's a folk singer I quite like. He wrote a book... Uh, about like the, you know the, the gigging he was doing to sure. like get to where he was, sure. and I and I thought that links into what he is and what he stands for, so I'd read that. Whereas you know uh, if if I think it's like J.K. Rowling doing the, the the new series of books she does yeah. under a new pseudonym, I just I, I think I'd find it unnerving to have my existing fan base sycophantly supporting it. Do you know okay. what I mean? Yeah, yeah, I understand that. Yeah, I think that's that's very valid. But I suppose. I suppose for me, I just think that, well, I'd like to see what the reviews are like and what the response is like. But ultimately, I need to be able to get the book out in the first place to do that. And it just opens so many doors if you are Taylor Swift. It doesn't mean that you will necessarily get a good response to your book. No, it doesn't guarantee it at all. If, if anything, it probably ups the ante for it being negative. And, and I think that's what JK, JK, me and her on first initial terms, <laughs> JK did where she sold it to a publisher on condition yeah. it would be under a different name yeah. so she could get it out there. But I know, I know what you mean. I, I totally respect the idea of, of being able to do stuff and have it get launched in a, in a much more fluid way. I just, I don't know. It's like, it's like um, who was it was it Stuart Lee did the joke about I can't remember which comedian who had like golf umbrellas with their face on or something oh right do you remember I can't remember which comedian it was but it was it was just like he just found a bit of merch that just did not it was like why would you want a comedian's face on an umbrella but apparently he's selling them and they're doing quite well because of the fan base thing so sure yeah wow I don't know I mean as a writer as well could it would it would it tie into the fact that you wanted to be like like have your own base of people that knew who you were because I think writers in TV unless they have some sort of cult hit don't necessarily get known in the same way. Yeah, that's you know very I mean? true. That's very true. And I kind of think that when you you're absolutely right, you don't get to see the response to your stuff when you're a writer unless you. I mean, working on my family was slightly different because you get to. Uh, 
you're there and there's an audience and the studio audience responds to your jokes whether they laugh or not you can tell what they think of them but on most shows that isn't the case they're not filmed in front of a studio audience and so I mean when I was watching Countdown I'd see the response because obviously there's an audience there but yeah for the most part you're just paid to write the script and then that's it you don't have any further involvement in the show I did like the idea of performing and I did like the idea of of being I suppose recognized rather than famous you know I wouldn't want to be as famous as Taylor Swift (laughs) you'd like to be able to walk down the street yeah yeah (laughs) and I can um perfectly understand that JK Rowling would have wanted to put her book out under a different name and get an agent who really or get sorry get a publisher who really likes the book on its own merits rather than just taking it on because she achieved such amazing success I think she's incredible she's one of my favorite favorite people but yeah go ahead <laughs> <laughs> no no that's it's, it's just interesting and and in terms of you said you how you got an agent quite soon after this yes yeah, so I got an agent when I was working on two pints and that was a writing agent or a live yeah. agent or okay. no uh, a uh, an agent for TV writing. So I signed with Casarotto Ramsey and Associates. And I also got a literary agent back then with MBA literary agents. I managed to <laughs> be really rubbish and <laughs> and kind of, you know, that would have been the perfect time, age 22, 23, to uh, put my own ideas out there, to get a book out there in front of publishers, to get my own scripts out there. But I just kind of coasted and I was sort of in some relationships that really messed my life up, like really messed my life up. Um, As you always are in the early 20s. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, but um, in a, you know, in a really bad way. So I was in a relationship with a guy who, um, I mean, I ended up writing about this uh, a few, just a few years ago. But in 2005, I was in a relationship with a guy and he violently attacked me and I was pregnant and it kind of messed everything up in my life, in my head for a year. And I had a termination that I didn't want to have. And it was, it was quite devastating. So I guess I wasn't really focusing on things. I wasn't as ambitious as I could have been. I wasn't really thinking, where do I want to be and how am I going to get there? I just thought I want to be happy and I want to be safe. And I had really, really bad anxiety after that happened for years and years, culminating in a nervous breakdown when I was 29. Then I had my daughter. So uh, now she's five years old. And now I feel like I'm really, really this year feeling extremely motivated motivated almost as motivated as I imagine you are because every time I look at you you're doing like new things and you know you're doing your tour and you're doing these podcasts and um, I really admire that and that's how I want to be really and I think if I could have been that way and capitalized on my success when I was 21 22 then you know who knows Uh, move over Taylor Swift but (laughs) like now I'm 36 and that's kind of well I wouldn't say it's old but it's certainly veering towards middle age and so I feel like this is my sort of last attempt to make something of myself and so I'm kind of going full steam ahead with the stand-up and the writing and doing my first Edinburgh show next year and yeah I'm gonna try and get another TV agent 
moment because understandably the last one decided when she came back after maternity leave she was paring down her client list and she kind of said well you don't write anymore <laughs> so <laughs> for, t- for telly you haven't written for telly for years so do you mind if we part ways and I said no that's fair enough so I'm gonna try and get another telly agent yeah so I'm writing my first novel and I'm gonna write the screenplay for my first novel and yeah really excited about it really excited about life at the moment but my 20s were an absolute mess so when you ask me about my 20s I'm just like oh god <laughs> and having to really think back and think back through all the sort of debris okay. of my 20s and think we can, we can move on from your 20s <laughs> I mean I, I'm about to hit 30 and I'm very much looking forward to it I, I had a great 20s but I yeah I'm done with 20s like you know what I mean I'm just like I've learned enough from my 20s I want cool. to I think when you I don't know if this is right you, you've turned 30 so you might be able to tell me but, sure. it, but it, in my head it feels like people look at you slightly different because it's a whole new number at the start do you know what I mean yeah yeah I think you might be right I mean I'm lucky in that I don't look as old as I am in the sense well see I didn't really know whether I did or not because nobody can be objective about this I didn't think you were 36 if that helps that's very kind no genuinely (laughs) I'm not just saying that because we're opposite each other and it'd be awkward (laughs) otherwise I didn't know I knew you were older than me because I knew when you brought out the atheist bus campaign and I remember that was the first time I had seen you even though we'd never like there was no we weren't like on Facebook or anything like that I don't think Facebook was even around when that was sure. a thing so so I knew you were older than me but I didn't know how much older than me and yeah yeah, yeah quite significantly older than you no I mean uh, not old enough to be your mum <laughs> old enough to be a big sister <laughs> this has gone to a weird white but okay yeah <laughs> the bus campaign was another it was a really odd thing to do and I kind of it kind of contributed to my breakdown because I got so many letters that were yeah. really hateful kind of saying I hope you die um, which was nice if you come to America I will shoot you in the head then that kind of thing so um i mean at least you know that's that's the one shot you know will be done and over do you know what i mean like it's, yeah it's not a, yeah it's not a wounding shot <laughs> i'm just looking at the bright side very comforting <laughs> <laughs> i'm very um, much a glass half empty but full of niceness it's still full of something okay so, yeah. okay no that's cool um <laughs> i'm kind of feeling a bit better about that now and i will go to america at some point um but oh, I'm did not... you not go because of that oh no 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 oh, okay. I, i've just never been oh, okay. i mean i'm half american but i've never been to america but i have a passport that's so great, it yeah. doesn't yeah it doesn't okay. yeah but i just think that back then i was very very nervous about everything especially after what happened in 2005 and that kind of my life sort of unraveled to the extent that these letters really pushed me over the edge Mm. and didn't write for over three years which is a long time to take out of your career Mm. and it coincided with my pregnancy and looking after my daughter so nobody really realized until I wrote a blog two years ago just saying I don't want to feel like I have to keep being mentally ill a secret anymore so Mm. I have an anxiety disorder and I have paranoia and I have OCD and I'm on medication for it and I'll probably be on medication for it for the rest of my life but it was such a relief to be able to get that out there and when I was talking to John Fleming about it he was saying a lot of comics have uh, you know depression or anxiety and that's it's pretty normal for our sort of world and I think actually it is why a lot of people become creative because they've had bad experiences like my childhood uh, was very violent and very dysfunctional and 
I think that I became a writer because I needed to get things out. I needed mm. to get my emotions out and make sense of them. And I've never really minded what sort of writing I do because it was just such a pleasure and so cathartic to be able to voice these thoughts in my head and not have them all cooped up in my head. So the Atheist campaign kind of span out of an article I wrote for The Guardian. It was just, I, I always had trouble ending articles. And this article was about these uh, Christian buses that had Bible quotes on them and underneath they had a website and the website I looked at the website and it said on the website that people who were non-Christians who didn't believe would go to hell and I thought oh no you shouldn't really be promoting this idea from the side of the bus and uh, so to end the article I said if all atheists reading this give five pounds then we can get an ad on the side of the bus that says uh, there's probably no god now stop worrying and it actually said get on with your life but we changed it later i changed it to enjoy your life and i didn't expect people to respond so positively and just say where do we send our fiver and i was like i don't know mm. <laughs> i don't even know if we can do this can we do this but it was just so amazing that it actually happened because you know I think a lot of the time you can hope that something goes viral and you can plan for it to go viral and it won't go viral. Yeah. And then something that was kind of really just a joke that started in a very lighthearted way can go viral in all kinds of ways that you don't expect and end up going global and running in 13 countries around the world. And yeah, sorry, I'm not letting you get a word in, am I? No, 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 no. <laughs> I was enjoying, uh, enjoying the background of that that whole thing because it feels like an early form of crowdfunding for you if, yeah. uh, for, for a project that you didn't even know you were going to do if that makes sense yeah yeah it was i mean i didn't know how it was going to work because this guy set up a pledge bank mm. i don't know if you remember pledge bank but yep. you know people could pledge to uh donate and if enough people pledged then everybody would donate and it would get funded and not enough people did pledge and then the daily telegraph ran this article saying basically haha atheists are so tight they don't want to fund this bus ad and i thought hang on a sec we haven't actually tried mm. you know this was just a guy who did it as a spin-off in that article so what would happen if I actually launched a campaign? And so I met up with the British Humanist Association. Well, I wrote another article saying, if anybody wants to get involved, then let me know. And lots of people did want to get involved. And the BHA said, we can administer the donation so you don't have to, you know, take take control of that because I didn't know how I would do that you know because yeah. when you're 27 years old and you've never run a campaign before and you've never mm. done any crowdfunding before it was all a mystery and then Richard Dawkins got on board mm-hmm. and Good old Dawkins yep yeah. and and I launched it with another article and the Guardian were really amazing about it I mean I don't I can't think of another paper who would have been so kind of yeah go ahead you know and we'll put the we'll put the link there and I remember when it launched somebody I think a sub got a bit overexcited and put on the front front page of the Guardian website join our our atheist campaign wow. <laughs> and then it got taken yeah, down like really that. quickly yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but um, yeah. yeah I think that generally most people who work for the Guardian are pretty non-religious um, as a lot of lefties are and really did kind of support it and it was lovely and my editor on Comment is Free really supported it yeah it was it was an amazing time but ultimately it led to me having a, a nervous breakdown <laughs> so but that wasn't the fault of anybody who supported it or donated it was just you know obviously you're going to get hate mail when you get that amount of publicity and I just wasn't equipped to deal with it yeah I know what you mean it's uh when I first started in social media there was a a 
a quote-unquote health bar that did a campaign and didn't tell me what they were doing uh, above the line. Right, right. And and I got a lot of hate tweets as a result of it. Basically, they ran a they ran a. It wasn't the same level as the um, are you beach? Yeah, Yeah. it wasn't at that level. But it but for the time five years ago, it was somewhere like that. Sure. And I got hundred. I literally woke up in the morning. I turned my phone off airplane mode, and you know all of a sudden the internet kicked in, and because I had myself logged in on their Twitter feed out of nowhere, hundreds of people uh, you know on the morning who have got the paper because that's the thing they're giving away. It just went mad at me, and I was like, it had to take me a minute before I got on the train to go. This isn't me. They're having a go at. Do you know what I mean? I I was able to separate myself from it, but for like 10-15 minutes, I was sitting there thinking, "What have I done? Like, do you know what I mean? What did I? You know what I mean? And so I can imagine if if the campaign is sort of yours but not yours because it's sort of an idea rather than a you know. And uh, the reason we were talking we were talking about this before because John Oliver had an idea for a bus that would go around England and it had something on. And I said, "Oh, do you want to do a new one?" (laughs) And you were like, "Nope, (laughs) don't want to go anywhere near a bus ever again." Um, no no I wouldn't I wouldn't do another campaign I don't think although that said I did a kind of very sort of I suppose it was a very soft kind of campaign to encourage people to give more to charity and be better people mm. and sign the organ donor list and vote in every election that kind of thing in 2013 but that is not the sort of campaign that gets you hate mail uh, no, I've, uh, because it's not taking a side necessarily. No, no. And, unless you look at it as you've picked a charity that they don't like. But then there's mm. very few charities to everyone. Ha- you know what I mean? Like it's it's it might be some people support one over another, but I don't think many people go bloody British Heart Foundation. <laughs> you should be supporting the ambulance society. I, I can't think of any others right now. But you know what I mean? It's it's kind of nice like that. Yeah. And I know, and I know what you mean about like, performers with mental health. I think yeah. Robin Williams had a really good quote that I saw after he died, where they asked. Him about his depression and he said it's not that a lot of comedians get depression because they you know they don't get into it and get it it's they have it and get into it because they know what it's like to be sad and they don't want other people to be sad so oh. they try and make everyone laugh oh that's that's nice yeah i think i think that might actually be true that's lovely yeah it's definitely the reason it's not the reason when i started but it's definitely the reason i'm still in it because it makes me feel better about myself that i'm not you know what i mean leaving the world with something less <laughs> than i started yeah, with. yeah yeah no absolutely i actually say a lot of the time when people ask me why I want to write comedy that it's because I've had so much darkness and horror in my life that I know what it's like to face that and I don't really want to have it in my head and I don't really want other people to have that in their head because of me but that said you know I know a lot of people really enjoy horror or violent movies or whatever it is and that's that's totally fine but I just can't really Mm. stomach it so that's why I don't write anything that's gory or anything that's particularly downbeat or depressing and uh just going back to tv slightly was it I don't want to say because it sounds. It, I don't. I hope you don't take this the wrong way. It sounds like a very fluid movement for you to go straight into TV from, oh, from right. the script and stuff. And I wondered if you actually had any knockbacks or if any of if any of your scripts got turned down or because because and I know you I know you've given me the highlight reel, so it's not exactly <laughs> what happened. But I'm sure the people listening going, well, obviously if she got on the BBC, you know, uh, course, then of course she's going to be in the right rooms and the right people and. All that kind of stuff. Yeah. And, and I'm, I'm assuming it wasn't as easy as... I remember that when I got on to the Sitcom Writers Awards, first off, there were 10 of us and uh, 10 would-be scriptwriters in a room, um, two of whom you might know, actually. So Danny Peake, who's written a lot for um, uh, My Hero and... Uh, 
I think he wrote, well, he wrote for Two Pints with me and he's written for loads and loads of sitcoms. He makes a good living from it, I think. And also Tom Phillips, who is better known as Flashboy and is now a journalist at BuzzFeed's. Yeah, I'm aware of BuzzFeed work. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) So we were the top three in the award. Every day for a week, two people would have their scripts read out and then critiqued by people such as uh, Graham Linehan. Oh, fuck. Beryl Virtue, who works on coupling, and a whole load more of script writers. I think Susan Nixon came in from Two Pints, or Paul Mayhew Archer, who also works on Two Pints and a lot of other sitcoms. So we'd all have our stuff critiqued. And I remember that my script was ripped apart so badly and I was so depressed about it that I was wandering around the BBC canteen just thinking, afterwards, just thinking, I'd better make the most of this because I'm never coming here again. And I was crying and I was so upset. And then they said to us, all the 10 finalists, go away, rewrite your scripts and send it in. I didn't. I just went on holiday because I assumed that my script would no way get through because they hated it. Mm. And then I got a call from, I think, Michael Jacob, who was the head of comedy development. And he said, "Um, you haven't sent your script in. And I said, no. And he said, is there a reason why? And I said, "Uh, because I didn't think you liked it. So I just decided not to do it. And he said... I think you should send it in. <laughs> um, he was really nice. Because he could have just said, well, fucker, Fuck you know. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah. But he didn't. He gave me another chance and I sent it in and then got through to the last three. And, um, ooh, bit of showbiz gossip for you. <laughs> it is not, it's not gossip at all, but it's, <laughs> it's just a fact. It's just a fact that I'm quite proud of. Showbiz fact time, guys. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know The Good Life? No, 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 not The Good Life. The Good Life is a sitcom. Yes. The Good Wife. I don't know The Good Wife. So The Good Wife is this amazing American legal drama. Right. I'm absolutely gripped by it. I love it. Okay. It is on Netflix. It is my favorite program. Archie Punjabi, who was in Bend It Like Beckham, and she was in a whole host of... She was in... Uh, oh, Low, she's been in loads and loads and loads of stuff. And just because I can't think of any off the top of my head, just go on her IMDb. She's amazing. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, she was in the um, the performance of my script and she played the lead. And she is Kalinda in The Good Wife. Oh, cool. Yeah. Okay. So um, that, was, that was an amazing realization. I was like, oh my God, she was in my yeah. performance. My performance was... Uh, did not go down well. The script did not go down well. Um, I remember Stuart Murphy, who was controller of BBC Three at the time, which was it was actually called BBC Choice back then, mm. but became BBC Three. He said there should definitely be an Asian sitcom, uh, but not this one. <laughs> my sitcom. Okay. Um, oh yeah, I'll tell you about my sitcom. So um, the, the way I had the idea was that I was staying with my grandparents because my granddad was dying, and I wanted to spend time with him. And and he was very religious. As you know, I'm not very religious. Hardly ever mention it. <laughs> <laughs> and we were sitting down together and he was telling me about Zoroastrianism, which is his religion and my my mum's side of the family's religion and about how, you know, we must be good and we must pray and this kind of thing. And I was saying, all right, okay, 
yes, yes. But I was kind of thinking, wow, because um, my parents are not religious at all. And I was thinking how different it must be to be in a family, like to have grown up with religious parents. And so I made um, the character uh, a Sikh girl who was, well, I said at the time she's a feminist and she hates men, which is... Uh, <laughs> Right. <laughs> yeah, which is not uh, something that I would say now. Yeah. Not something I would say now and not a feminist. And well, she was, but you know, she wasn't, I, yeah, you know. Uh, yeah, sorry. But, I was just going to say, I, I never understand that because my, my understanding of feminism is that everyone's equal. So, of so, so to, hate a whole other, to hate the whole other gender <laughs> doesn't make sense to me as a feminist. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. I mean, I think you get radical, you, you've had radical feminists like um, Andrea Dworkin who said that all sex is rape and stuff like that. But most feminists, <laughs> most feminists would not subscribe to that line of thinking. And anyhow, so um, she decided that she didn't want a boyfriend, but her her parents were desperate to set her up with a line of suitors so that she could get married. And she also had an admirer who was a builder called Darren Hyde. So I called the sitcom. Can you guess? Hide and seek. Exactly. <laughs> That's why nice. you're a comedian. Yeah. Um, I was thinking yeah. if you haven't called it that, you've missed a bloody good opportunity. <laughs> it was an excruciating pun, and it was full of excruciating puns. Um, <laughs> you would have got quite a weird audience for that then. <laughs> yeah. There was a guy who's, who came, well, basically the, the suitor called Davinda, who came into the house, and the, the father said, oh, did you come by public transport? Davinda said, no, I came in my car. And she said, I hope you cleaned up afterwards. And it was just like totally <laughs> terrible, terrible, terrible jokes. Unsurprisingly, it never got made. And then I got put on this shadow scheme where I would um, be mentored by, as I say, Jane Dauncey. She was very nice. And I got mentored on this show called Kaching, which was a children's BBC show. So I wrote a shadow episode of it, meaning a shadow, an episode which is never going to make it into, you know, production. production exactly. Right. You're much more articulate than I am. Why can't I be more articulate? Because I'm saying less words, so I have more time <laughs> to think. By the time this is edited, I um, I trust that I will be extremely articulate. I'm Simon. not promising anything. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, so cool. So, um, <laughs> so um, I, I should say I just edited another one with, uh, do you know, Andrew Allard? He's like a really, he's like one of the best script editors in, oh, in the cool. business. And he, he said, if this, is st- if this bit's still in, it's, a, it's an editing error on Simon's part. And I said, <laughs> what makes you think that bit stay? What makes you think the bit after this where you validate that I've done something wrong is staying in? The bit before is staying in. This bit's coming out. I'm not, you know, so. <laughs> So yeah, I had loads of knockbacks. I mean, I remember writing on Two Pints and it just didn't go really very well and they basically rewrote most of my script. The same thing happened on The Worst Witch. Um, They said, we're just going to do a script polish, which basically means we're going to rewrite your whole script. But, you know, I'm a better writer now. I've learnt a lot. Do you still get paid if they rewrite your script? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. You still get paid the full fee. To me, that's kind of odd. And you still get a credit on the... Yeah, yeah. It's kind of weird to me like that because it seems like... Like, again, this is another thing I was chatting about with Andrew Ellard, where he said that, you know, they're getting to a stage with the credits where, because of 
uh, syndication fees and all that kind of stuff. They're kind of cutting down who's on it because obviously you get paid more if you're a certain a certain level of writer. But the catering is always going to be on it, and that annoys him. But also they move it to like the bottom of the screen and start advertising the next show and all that kind yeah, of stuff. Yeah, that's true. So it seems really not odd, but interesting that even if you're even if you, for example, did not get a single line in the show. Oh yeah, there you were loads still of get lines. There were loads oh, of lines okay. that I've written in it. Yeah, but yeah. if you didn't get any, would you still get a credit? Um, that wouldn't happen. I mean, unless okay. <laughs> I mean, I've never known that to happen. I mean, they'd just most likely say, "Thank you for your time." We'll, you know, we'll we're, we'll contact you. Yeah, five years. <laughs> that happened on a show <laughs> on a show I was writing on called Danny's House, where I just didn't make it past script outline stage. So yeah, I've had loads of knockbacks, loads of difficult things that have happened. But I also wrote on Countdown for three years without any of my stuff being edited ever. So it's like it all made it onto the show, and it was just read out verbatim, and it was amazing. And do, do you think that's? And I hope you don't take this the wrong way, but do you think that's your? You were able to write the tone of voice that suited Countdown but maybe you weren't as able to write the tone of voice for Two Pipes, for example. So is it a case of they sort of assumed that you could write for that and then then you, you sort of have to find out the hard way? Like, you stand up when you get on stage and you find out it's not funny. Um, well, with Two Pipes, I wrote a, uh, a kind of sample script before I was allowed on the show. Okay. So because I wrote that sample script, it was kind of... Yeah, it was kind of proof that I could write in the voice that they wanted. But for whatever reason, it didn't really work out. I think one of the hardest things about writing on big shows is that you don't have much of a say over the plot line. So whereas when you work on CBBS or Children's BBC, you can come up with your own story ideas. When you work on My Family or Two Pints or anything like that, then you're generally constrained by somebody else's outline. So mm-hmm. even if it's an outline that doesn't particularly inspire you, you still have to write it. Whereas obviously if you're writing a sample script, you can write about whatever you want. So that's that may be part of it. But is a, is a sample script you writing something unpaid for fun to send in to prove you can do it exactly. like, a, like an intern exactly okay. but they will have requested it oh okay so it's not you I want to write for that show I'm going to write it and send it to the producer it's the producer said could you write a sample script we'll read it exactly yeah exactly that's exactly what it was but that having having said that I would I would recommend you know anybody who's listening to this who actually wants to be a script writer if you want to write for your fi- favourite show yeah find out who the producer is just by looking at the credits mm. then write a sample script and send it to them because they don't get very many as far as I'm aware I mean I don't really know anybody who's got into the business through doing that mm. most people who I used to know who worked in telly got in through competitions like Susan Nixon got in through winning a Channel 4 competition She's the creator of Two Pints. Then Danny Peak got in through coming first, getting first place in the Sitcom Writers Award that I was on. And loads more writers, yeah, just got in through through that or through BBC Writers Room competitions. Do you think now it's more of a closed door then? I don't really know. I'm really out of the loop. I'm really sorry. <laughs> There's okay. like no help to you. Well, but. I, I didn't think you. I thought you'd be the perfect person to ask that because you you were writing stuff in your early twenties. Yeah. You've sort of stopped for a number of years now, and now you're trying to get back into it. So I assumed, although you have writing credits, and although you have a bit more of a uh, sort of maybe two feet on the ladder. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. 
But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Introducing WonderSuite from bluehost.com. Website creation is hard. But now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step -step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. And some other people might not have. Trying to get back into it, I'm assuming, you know, I, I've spoken to a few uh, women who've like taken maternity leave and stuff and then tried to come back to right. whatever. And they found it, well, whether, whether it's actually a result of that or whether it's just them being out, like anyone being out is another, you know, is it, I, I can't tell because I've never had a baby. I don't know. And, and, <laughs> and never also, had I, a know, baby. I know, not that I know. Joking. Hey. <laughs> oh, God, I thought I was better than that. Um, <laughs> But you, but you know what I mean is is if you take time out of anything, mm -hmm. any career, it's it's a case of it's going to be detrimental to both you staying sharp, but also you getting the you know keeping going and being sure. in the thing. So sure. so I mean I'm always interested into I'd, I'd like to think the the sexism involved of saying they now have a kid, you know they won't be as good or they won't you know they might prioritize their child over the job or they, I mean they would, but you know what I mean you you would assume that that level of thought and sexism wouldn't come into it but I'm sure it does at some to some people on some level well not having worked as a TV writer or tried to get back into TV writing since having my daughter I don't really know I mean I think I'm not going to let well I know that I'm not going to let it hold me back so if you have to be twice as good I'll be twice as good if you have to be twice as dedicated I'll be twice as dedicated and the great thing is that my daughter's dad and I share custody of her so he has her during the week and I have her at weekends and uh, in holidays and because of that I have loads of loads of free time in the week um, to gig mm. and to write and to yeah I mean but I don't think I mean I would think that the media would be one of the places where that would be much less likely to happen because a lot of women have top jobs in the media and uh, most of the media is pretty liberal so I would be surprised if that were a big issue I mean I might be showing my naivety and just not be aware of it but I'll let you know if if I feel discriminated against <laughs> in the future Pretty soon. We, we, we will all as a unit tweet them and tell them how horrible they've been <laughs> uh, and also I mean before you were saying that uh, you said it would be the prime time to jump on your success uh, in, in your younger days yeah. and you said that it's not I mean I don't know what middle age is anymore because I don't know what the average age people live to is anymore but I, I 
I know I know female act- actresses or act- actor. I don't know what you because I, I actors actors yeah, yeah. yeah. but I I have default I say actresses sure, I'm sure. used to that and I don't mean it in a That's you know fine. what I mean no, just, I know nobody's going to take it pejoratively I need to point that because I know one person <laughs> might and then oh. you just don't want to but yeah so uh, I know they say stuff like uh, after a certain age there are less parts for you or sure. or for example you know the, the, you're you're not over the hill but it's I saw a tweet from an actress the other day who said something like oh it's my 40th birthday today or as Hollywood says it next and and I was like I like that tweet but I also don't like that tweet because it's funny but I'm hoping it's not as true as you you know what I mean that's a great tweet yes and I suspect that it is actually true sadly in Hollywood because I was just reading a book a book on screenwriting called Save the Cat yes that's the one that I can't remember who recommended it now oh god there was a there was a screenwriter who I had on I ask everyone for oh. a book recommendation. They said that book. Sorry, yeah. <laughs> it's just because I got it as a PDF, but I haven't, uh, a Kindle, but I haven't bought, read it yet. Sure. Sorry, yeah, go on. Yeah. It is the first book I have ever read about writing. Mm. And I decided to read it because one of my friends, who is a best selling author, recommended it to me. And I thought, okay, fair dues, I will read that. They'll know. Yeah. Yep, yep. And so I was using it to plot out my novel, and it has been invaluable. It's been amazing. So that is my book recommendation, too. It is. You can't have that. You well, have that's it. the yeah. only book. <laughs> the only book I've ever read on writing. Okay, fine. <laughs> um, which is interesting, really, because people are always like, oh, what have you read or which courses have you done and that kind of... And, uh, you know, I genuinely haven't really done a writing course that... I mean, I tend to think if you can write, you can write. I really do. I think that comedy courses are useful. Um, I did Chris Head's comedy course, and that was useful. And Logan Murray's course was very useful as well because uh, you learn a lot about delivery. You learn a lot about, you know, stuff that people don't tell you about, you know, handling the mic or walking onto stage or that kind of thing, you know, which is, is tremendously useful. But as far as writing goes... I'm kind of sceptical. But that said, I have really, really found Save the Cat to be incredibly useful. And now I feel like I know where I'm going with my novel and I'm sort of full steam ahead with it and I'm feeling really excited about it. So that's great. But I've forgotten why... Oh, yes, I mentioned it. I mentioned it because he said, make your characters young. You know, don't, you know, don't make your characters like your age or older. Remember that the average people who go to the cinema are in their 20s and they want to see films about people who are in their 20s because after you have a kid you're much 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 less likely to go to the cinema apparently apparently i'm I'm waiting i I was waiting for more information on that because (laughs) i i could see why you you might logistically because because you would go to the cinema but you might just not see that film you'll go and see bfg or something you know what i mean but i just i i would I wouldn't resent my child if that happened, but I would like to think that I could still live some level of my own life. Do you know what I mean? And it sounds like you've done quite a good job of uh, juggling parenthood in, in a very good way. I've seen you guys like very briefly, but it, you know, it, it seems like you've got a very good bond and good communication there and stuff. But you also are pursuing other things, and it would seem odd to me I never understand that I mean my parents are like that they they only pursue their own work and then you know like hang out with each other and I'm like and then their own friends who are doing the same thing and I'm like do you not have a hobby do you not have oh. something <laughs> it just makes me feel awkward because there's nothing to get to know there sure and I know you don't have to have a personality then because you're married and you're fine but you, it's nice <laughs> to have one do you know what I mean yeah it's nice I mean um, my daughter is wonderful I love her so much and she makes everything better and she does drive me because 
Um, you said you didn't drive, yeah. she is really good for fueling my ambition is that a good enough synonym for you Simon (laughs) no because basically she always says that she wants to travel the world and she wants to have adventures and I said well okay well I've never really traveled I mean I wrote a few pieces with the Sunday Times where I had to travel and I went to Jamaica and I went to Geneva and that was great But since having her, I haven't really done any travel pieces. And I also don't think that she would get very much out of it at the moment. But what I'm trying to do is save up so that when we are, you know, when she's in her teens or takes a gap year... I mean, she might not want me to go with her. She might be like, oh, <laughs> mum, you're so annoying. You're so embarrassing. Go away. But um, it would Where be really... Where was this when I was five? <laughs> <laughs> but it would be really nice to, uh, to travel with her. And so I have this sort of dream about traveling the world with her. And so I figure that I've got to get really successful. And, uh, you know, and then I can write travel pieces and I can do research for novels as I'm traveling and mm. that kind of thing. So, yeah, she really does um, sort of propel me in terms of uh, career ambitions. Um, I thought you were avoiding saying drive now. <laughs> <laughs> do you blame me, Simon? <laughs> well, I thought we were doing cheesy puns. I thought that was part of this. Cheesy puns are good. Yeah, it was kind of cheesy. Uh, yeah, yeah. But okay. um, especially cheese puns. I love cheese puns. Oh, uh, okay. Uh, I can't think of any right now, but if I think of any, slip that in somewhere. Um, I come and bear them. Uh, I hope you don't give you damn. Breathe. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. That's quite yeah. good. That one. I like that one. <laughs> um, yeah. So, what was I going to say? Yeah, having the good work-life balance when you've got a kid. I find that it's easy for me, but I think that that's just because I don't have. I'm not looking after her full time. Yeah, if you've got her half the week, essentially. Yeah. Yeah, and so. When you are not being a parent, I know you're always a parent, but when you're not being yeah. a parent and you're working, what work do you do at the moment for money? So I write for The Spectator and I write for New Humanist magazine. So I've been writing quite a lot for The Spectator recently, which has generated me quite a lot of sort of, uh, not exactly hate mail, but quite... Um, <laughs> I thought you guys were income then. <laughs> no, 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 no. Um, uh a lot of comedians don't like The Spectator. A lot of comedians don't like my pieces. Also hate mail from other performers. Yeah, yeah. yeah Interesting. Yeah, just Why? kind of... Um, well, not I don't actually, know that magazine very well. So. Not direct... Uh, well, it's a right-wing magazine. Right, okay. So and most it. comics are kind yeah. of lefty. As am I, but they... I remember um, reading a funny, a funny post from somebody saying that I was only pretending to like Jeremy Corbyn because I've got a love song for him. Yeah, but, I and, know, yeah. yeah, And that, yes, she's a false Jeremy Corbyn fan, that she's not really because she writes to the spectator. And I was like, no, I really do like him. I mean, he might not like me anymore, but I really <laughs> <laughs> he's probably like, you know, got his security to look out for me because I've like got some weird song about him written a love song but yeah I really do like him and but I think that being a writer is all about being versatile and it's all about taking opportunities and Spectator is an amazing magazine I mean um, and a lot of uh, left wing writers write for it like Nick Cohen and Will Straw and I think that it's kind of quite close minded of some comedians to go oh no I won't I'll never write for that or I'll never write for this you know, I, I'm going to be careful with the way I phrase this because 
I sort of said something similar on, on, on a thing recently. And I don't want to repeat myself, but also... Basically, I think you can take on... I think take on work if you feel like you can sleep at night once you've taken it. Sure. So I think integrity is something that I value quite a lot with people on the circuit. And I think, for example, if you... you I mean, I'm looking right at you. You don't seem like you're sort of, you know, trying to validate it to me. You just feel like you, you're quite upset by the limitations of other people's opinions on it. Not your... Ex- yeah, yeah. I mean... Yeah, so I, I, I think taking opportunities is a great thing, but I, I think, yeah, as long as you're comfortable with it, it doesn't matter if then, you know. Yeah, that's yeah. true. I mean, I suppose there are publications I, of course, would not write for, yeah. but uh, I'm... What? No, God. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, and I'm not going to come out as, you know, a massive Tory and um, say that I, you know, think that the dismantling of the NHS is a great thing or anything like that. I wouldn't be able to sleep at night if I did that. But writing funny pieces um, for a publication which has got pretty much the highest quality journalism of any publication is is fantastic yeah i'm not i i'm I'll be honest i'm not very familiar with the magazine i've lost a lot of respect for newspapers recently a lot of them because they publish rubbish sometimes and like i mean when pokemon go came out i saw in the telegraph and the telegraph's never been my go-to paper mm-hmm. but i saw an article on it that was like how to get the like bulbazor on like i was like wh- wh- what are you why is that an article that you're writing oh that's right you want to hit on your website because you've not worked out how to earn a revenue stream from advertising you know what i mean and it's like the the, the clickbait economy online drives me mad and i and i think again it comes down to the integrity of the paper meaning I would be loyal to it rather than it trying to sucker me in so I will look into that because <laughs> I assume it doesn't have a paywall or anything like that on it oh it does but you oh, can okay, read then. you can read then a certain, then you, can, you can read a certain number of articles before okay um, but some of them were quite well I, I wrote an, an article that people found quite controversial which was all about jokes to do with race and I said that some jokes to do with race are funny so you shouldn't just say they're racist because they're not racist some jokes obviously are racist and I'm not talking about Man- Bernard Manning style jokes I'm talking about about just jokes about race Mm. and some of them I find funny and I listed one that I found funny as an Asian person about Asian people and another one a Gary Delaney joke and I said you know these jokes may be about race but they're not racist but a lot of comedians did not read the article properly and just went you think racist jokes are fine (laughs) but this is the problem we've got with with I think I think comedians like drama more than they should do and I think social media <laughs> hasn't helped that because uh, this is the thing I I I've been looking at starting a new podcast about feminism and and because, because I think if you I think if you say something ignorant it doesn't make you ignorant it just means you haven't been educated enough yet sure. if you carry on saying ignorant things then you're ignorant but if you don't understand something or if you or if you want if you want to learn you have to ask if you have to ask a stupid question like in this podcast I ask stupid questions all the time to people who have been doing it 20 years and they put up with me for some reason you know what I mean and and they and they go all right well I'll explain that to you if you really need to know you know and it, and it's because I don't know and I'm more than happy to look like an idiot because I'd rather learn than walk around making stuff up in my head like you would and if we've all got mental problems we don't need to add to that with questions sure. you know what I mean so and I can understand with the race thing or it's the same with like sex, uh, not sex uh, gender based jokes yeah. and stuff where you think you can have a joke uh, a sexist joke be amusing as long as it's not as long as you're not punching down if that makes sense sure do you know what I mean and it's it's, it's like I have a I have a joke in my current show about how um, 
it's, it's a long one about International Women's Day, but it ends with me saying that I hate male comedians who sort of come up on stage now and say they're feminists because I was a feminist way before it was cool. And, 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 it's, and it's annoying because they say, I saw a comedian say, uh, you know, oh, I think women can do everything as well as men. And, and it's not true because historically one thing women can't do as well as men is oppress a gender. <laughs> they're rubbish at it, right? And I, th- I think that's just a clever way of looking at it. I don't think, it's, I don't think I'm being sexist there. Oh, no, there's not sexist. Exactly. It's funny. But, but I did have a woman in Brighton after I'd done it for six dates in Brighton and at the end of it like the last date I did a woman came up to me and said I was really with you on that joke until you until you were very sexist at the end and I was like are you really? That was the point when you <laughs> thought I was starting to be sexist like that was that was the breaking point for you You're basically and, saying that women aren't good at being crap and horrible Yeah and, and, like... I, and I think that's perfectly reasonable to say <laughs> but it was just and also it's it's not digging at women it's digging at men Of course Do you know what I mean? Yeah yeah so, and, I've, and I made sure I got the phrasing of that as best I can so I make sure that it looks that I'm the idiot because I don't realise how you know what I mean and and it was just weird to me but but it was the fact she came up to me I questioned it for a minute where I was like is everyone else just too chicken to tell me that I'm being sexist but I suppose like you said it, it comes down to if you can sleep at night and you think you're but again self-awareness but if you think you're right in it, it, it it's a case of their misunderstanding of your perception on, a, on a, an issue yeah no absolutely and I think that I'm not going to bother well losing sleep about that either because you know mm. it's just a waste of energy and when you when you get writing work like that is it mm. is it a case of yeah, work from an office work from home work freelancing from home. Yeah, and yeah. Uh, so you're freelancing that yeah yeah so I've, I've always been freelance all the way through my career okay. um even when i was writing for telly i was completely freelance um which is great because it means that you can go and write for you can write for the bbc while you're writing for channel four and nobody mm. minds and ditto uh when you're writing for papers if you're not on contract then you can write for the guardian at the same time you're writing for the sunday times same time as you're writing for Spectator, totally mm. fine. Whereas when you're on contract, then you're not allowed to write for another paper or another magazine if you're writing for a magazine generally. So, yeah, I've only ever really been freelance. And apart from when I had my nervous breakdown and then I didn't want to write anything in the public eye for over three years, and I went and got a job with a company called Living Social. Oh, I know um, them, yeah. Yeah, and yeah. I, I wrote... Uh, the copy for their adverts. Oh, really? So, yeah. Oh, nice. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, I'm aware of that. Although I think they've slowed down now because Groupon and th- that whole economy is sort of, yeah. Sure, sure. <laughs> um, yeah. But it's, it's, it was an interesting time where we were like, yeah, let's all buy cheap stuff and <laughs> see if it devalues it. Oh, um, <laughs> but no, no, sorry, I just realised that's not a dig at you. That's just a general, um, I think I think the concept was there, but I think they didn't implement it well. I think I think if they'd done it where they said, "Okay, if five hundred of us want to buy a TV for fifty quid less, can we bulk buy it?" Like like you would sell it to a shop, yeah. But you'd sell it to five hundred people. I think that's a good way of doing it. But I think saying eighty percent off of something and see if people come back is a weird non long term strategy for a company. Yeah, I mean there are a lot of things that I think that they did wrong, and I would change but you know i wasn't in any position of power so <laughs> and it's not funny so we'll move on <laughs> um bill so you wrote something for chortle which i don't know if this came out of when you wrote the thing because i because i didn't i didn't see if the oh. correlation but i think the article was called uh, well in fact, there was two there was one that was called um i'd get further if i lost a stone or lost four stone yeah and there was another one that said is this routine lazy yeah which one would you like to start with <laughs> uh, let's go for the losing four stone okay Yep. <laughs> so I have actually lost stone and a half now. So um, I'd get further if I lost two and a half stone. Thank you very much. <laughs> so have you got more gigs than the last stone and a half? <laughs> no, it's not really about gigs. It's more about 
telly and it's more about you know it's understandable if I were a producer and I were picking people to be on my TV show and I was aware that there is a sizable amount of the audience who are young men or just men in general who want to see attractive women it's not it's not right but it's not wrong it's just nature and I think that people yeah people are like oh I fancy her I'll tune in and I'll watch her and you know if I'm very overweight then they probably won't want to watch me and that doesn't detract from me being funny it doesn't mean that you know I'm I'm less funny or more funny or anything it's it's just the way of the world and I think that protesting that it shouldn't be is kind of pointless and I also think that protesting that it isn't the case is kind of naive I will agree that I watch some programs based on the fact that there is a lady in it that I find attractive. Sure. That's not something I can deny. And But there are very few new shows that I watch on that basis, if okay. that makes sense. They tend to be ones that I've watched for a while. Okay. And I sort of enjoy enjoy the show enough now. But I started because they were there. So like in The Big Bang Theory, for example, um, Kaylee Kuku, Keiko, I don't know how to pronounce her last name and now it's changed again. Oh. So, But uh, yeah, her, Penny, I, I, I started watching because I was a fan of her in Eight Simple Rules. Right. And as a result, I thought I'll watch it because she's in it. Yeah. And, and I've slowly, I've grown to like it and hate it in the same different reasons, but we won't get into that right now. I think you're right in the terms of it being like sort of nature in terms of uh, genes and, and evolution and all that kind of stuff. But I watch a lot of people online who are not TV, that TV attractive, if you right, like. Right, right, right. And I love watching them. Like genuinely, it's, it's, they're, they're really attractive because they do something creative. And to me, that's really attractive. And I would like to think that TV, if it wanted to, could put out shows with people on it who were not the archetype that have existed for so long that would change the dynamic because ultimately that wasn't always there you know what i mean like i think i think there was a there was a psychology test where the, the, in fiji or something they started showing a certain couple of programs to women who never shaved their their arms and they started doing it because they'd seen it on the show oh right and it wasn't it, it was just a new thing for them but they yeah. thought oh this is what the men are going for on the tv now we'll yeah. start doing it yeah well it's all um it's all social conditioning i mean yeah. there's no reason why men wouldn't fancy a woman with hairy legs Otherwise, we wouldn't have hairy legs if, if it was going to impede evolution. Another but woman with hairy legs. Sorry. <laughs> no, no it's, it's, because, it's actually the reverse. It's because, because I think she's incredibly comfortable with me, so it doesn't feel she has to do that to impress me. Right, right. Or to, or to do it for an attractive reason. Not that she's doing it to that, maybe, but you know what I mean? Okay. So I quite like that when she doesn't bother, because I'm like, great, we're comfortable. <laughs> and it's a good sign. Oh, that's cool. I mean, I think that when te- where telly's concerned, producers want to get the highest, highest ratings for their shows. Of course. And there is probably some data to support the idea that attractive women make ratings spike. And so if it's a choice between two women and one of them is very overweight but very funny and the other one is very hot and very funny, guess which one, you know, I I would certainly... I mean, if I were a producer, that's what I would do. If that's the case, why write the article if it's a thing that's going to exist anyway and it's a thing that everyone sort of underlyingly knows about what was the need to highlight it oh it well those articles are digests mm-hmm. of my email uh, which goes out every week so i discuss a few things in that and like loads and loads of things just about my life and one of the things was that i want to lose four stone because i think that 
I would get further if I lost four stone. And so Steve Bennett went through all the emails and he kind of, you know, did an edit, took some bits, left some bits and then put a headline on it. Is the irony that that bit being the most sensational that would get him the most hits lost on you? Because you know what I mean? Like if, if, if he had loads of options in that email and I don't know what else was in it. But if he had loads of options in that email, picking that one out, he must have known that was going to be the the most traffic driving part of that. Sure. No, absolutely. Um, And again, that's what I would do if I were an editor. But um, I don't think that means it's not true. Or I don't think that means that, you know, it's it's I don't think it means it's particularly debatable. I mean, people can debate it if they want to. But I don't think that I don't think it makes sense to say no, you know, people who are bigger get on well women who are bigger get on just as well as pe- women who aren't because I just I just don't think that's true I mean just look at look at Hollywood you know the only fat women in Hollywood are you know Melissa McCarthy who is like the comic character who's like look at Bridesmaids you've seen Bridesmaids I've seen Bridesmaids so she's kind of like the gross out fat character and you know and she's funny but she's not you know the love interest she's not she doesn't get Chris O'Dowd at the end I, I like how you picked him. I really like him. <laughs> and also, uh, the, it's interesting you picked him because he is... Well, he's the Irish guy from the It Crowd, isn't he? That's right. Yeah, because he's dating... Or he's married now to Dawn Porter. Yeah. And I remember reading an interview of her where she said the reason she liked him was because he had a bigger... She likes men who, you know, are like men men yeah, rather yeah. than rather than just you know spend hours pruning themselves men oh that's sweet and yeah so that's why that to me was an interesting link that you know the other side of that is that women potentially find men in that respect attractive rather than the the what's his name the new bond you know the guys Danny Craig yeah yeah, yeah. so <laughs> I'm sure women find both of them attractive but you know what I mean it's it's like yeah I think that women well I mean this gets us all into a great big um but in evolutionary terms, women would go for men who would be strong and brave and successful. And in terms of being successful, that meant back in the day going out and spearing some animals for them to eat that night. And then as we evolved, that became successful in uh, go out, do a job that is well remunerated so that they can provide for the children, etc. And of course, we'd all like to think that we've kind of gone past that now and that men aren't attracted to women just because they are more likely to have uh, a thin waist so they're not pregnant and they have breasts and hips that are good for breastfeeding and uh, childbirth and that kind of thing we'd like to think that we're past that but I think deep down we're all still still animals Simon I no I would I'm not disagreeing with you (laughs) I I I think I think the problem is that we we've evolved physically quicker than we're evolving mentally and I think that the the ingrained psychological effect of of wanting certain traits is going to be there for a lot longer than it should be partly because the media keeps it there and keeps showing it to us in a way that is not help you know with the social conditioning of it i just find that interesting because it almost because that means that that almost wasn't your choice to have that article out it was steve's i mean i'm sure you've got an overriding you know actually i would prefer if you put that out kind of option but it sounds like he picked out. And also, when you email your mailing list, you know that's going out to um, a certain demographic of people who maybe, and, and I don't might be wrong about this, but you're preaching to the choir. They know who you are. Sure, and sure. But whereas when it goes out on Chortle, it's 
going to hit a lot more people yeah. and it's going to I mean I don't know how big a mailing list is but it's going to hit a lot more people in a way that maybe don't know you and don't relate to you and you know sure, what I mean sure so um, with any kind of article like that the editor always comes up with a headline or the sub-editor, um, more often when you're writing for publications. Anyhow, that is totally fine with me. I wanted it on short tour because, of course, it's got a far wider reach. I didn't mind the digest at all. I didn't mind that headline at all. And um, he did compile the first one. And then after that, because I know how busy he is, I just kind of compiled them and sent them to him. But yeah, it's been it's been great and it's got me a lot more people on my list and yeah every little help so yeah do you find because it sounds like you kind of have full reign over that editorial as well as when you were at the guardian so do you find not getting feedback useful or not useful um so when i was at the guardian my stuff did tend to go in pretty much verbatim which was great after years and years of being ruthlessly edited as a TV writer, suddenly my stuff was out there and people were liking it for the most part. But of course, remember that you have tons and tons of reader comments on The Guardian. So if they don't like you, they will let you know. And in the meanest terms, you know, you know, possible, they, they are, they can be very, very kind of vituperative. I like that word. Um, <laughs> Solid use of words. <laughs> they can be... You said you're not. <laughs> <laughs> they don't pull any punches. Right. So if they don't like it, they're more than happy to say it. And I think an element of it is, I wish I were a writer. Why does this person get to be a writer? I'm going to be really, really mean to them. It's not just true of The Guardian. You know, it's true of pretty much every publication I've ever worked for. Through from, you know, from The Guardian to The Spectator, I suppose that's the spectrum. Okay. And speaking of feedback, should we say, the other article you wrote where it was... Oh, yeah. I'd, I'd, uh, is this routine la- lazy? lazy? Yeah. Yeah, and then loads of people were like, yeah, it's lazy. <laughs> like, cheers for that. What was the... What was... Because, again, if you've got... You could put anything in that. So, and you, and you made a point in it where you were saying that, you know, you'd got feedback and so you wanted to get more feedback. I mean, I don't know if I'd... I, don't, I would want feedback, but I'd want constructive feedback. But also, if someone's already... Do you know what I mean? Like, you, you just sort of... It, even the title was sort of leading towards, tell me it is and tell me what... You know what I mean? It's sort of... Do you know the main reason why I put my jokes out there? Go for it. It is so that I can see whether they're original or not. Because I don't want to tread on anybody's toes. You know, I don't want to overstep and basically do a whole routine that somebody else has already come up with and of course I can't see all the comics on the circuit and I'm pretty much out of the loop I mean as as of the end of February you know I've been gigging but before that you know I'm, I've been a mum I've been a copywriter I've been a journalist and I just haven't really been on the circuit so I'm just not familiar with stuff that people have come up with so I thought well I can put this out and I've got a Facebook account that's just my comedian account and I thought, well, I'll put this out and see how many people say, oh, you know, yes, I think that's original or this is not original or, you know, if people like it, then that's great. Especially if comedians like it, then you know you're onto something. Well, A non-commercially viable joke in my opinion. <laughs> <laughs> um. But the thing is that, like... I'd have just loads of comics just going, oh, that's shit. It's like, no, I don't care. I don't care whether you think it's shit. 
is it original? You know, because I can make the call as to whether I want to use it or not, whether I think it's shit, whether I think it's hack. You know, I can try it out on stage and then Mm. the audience can tell me whether they think it's shit. But all I need to know is, did I come up with this independently of anybody else i mean of course i would never i would never hopefully take anything in via osmosis through being a gig we all do though do you think yeah yeah i think everyone does i think i think it's impossible not to because it's it's like i don't know if you if you if you see someone's face pop up on facebook you haven't seen them for a while and all of a sudden you think about them later and that you know it's it's taking in messages and, and the subconscious psychology of that that I, th- I think it's impossible not to take it in, but I think it's uh, when you start to process your own stuff, that's when you start to notice what you've taken and what you haven't. Right, right. So I think it's impossible not to take it in, but I think it's possible to filter it out. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, I mean, I I am really nervous about it because, of course, the whole thing about being a joke thief mm. is, like, a big deal. So yeah. Yeah, no, yeah. of course, of course. And I would hate it if anybody stole my stuff. That happened to me once with a joke, and I actually confronted the comic. But when I, if I see somebody putting their jokes up on Facebook I would tell them if I thought oh I think such and such has a joke about that because that's helpful but actually yeah. just going underneath going oh yeah that's hack that's shit it's like mate you know <laughs> I have my own yeah. <laughs> ideas of you know I can I can assess my own jokes and mm. that's just mean and it's pointless and it's going to make me hate you it's just yeah. going to make me dislike you yeah and, and in this industry the last thing you want is for people to start hating you because then I mean I, I remember I bumped into someone the other day I won't say who but it was at a gig and I I had this, I just hated them and I couldn't work out why and I remembered that it was just we had this altercation on Facebook years ago and I've just not spoken to them since and it's just been growing in me oh yeah and, yeah. and it's not that you know it's just a tiny thing but we and, they, and, I, and I remember by the end of the gig I'd worked out what it was and I turned around to them and I just went you're going to laugh at this but I hated you when you got in the room because I just I couldn't remember what it was and I looked at our last I went to our you know his page went to our conversations saw it was like 2012 and I was like yeah when you said that it really annoyed me and he was like oh no you misread what I and I was it wasn't oh. I misread what he said it's just I misread the tone of how he said it oh. and, and it was like oh alright fine and then and then he was like yeah I thought you were being really sharp with me after that and then and we're fine now oh that's good but it was the fact that I'd even brought it up that we were like yeah yeah that's good yeah. that's really good I mean unfortunately I don't really think there's any other way to read that shit as no <laughs> no I mean that's a that, that is that, I mean, to be fastened, that is succinct. I mean, they're, they're at least being concise about it. Yeah, I mean, just... I mean, there's a, there's a comic who regularly sort of relishes writing stuff that, like, oh, this has been used, that has been done, this is... And actually said to me, oh, I, I think you're lazy and I find that galling because I think you're capable of better. And it's like, mate, I've been a professional comedy writer for 14 years. You know, I don't need mm. you to, you know, I don't come to your gigs and go, yeah, do you know, <laughs> I didn't laugh once and it was just really dull and... You know, you could be better. I, I, just, be better. I just wouldn't do that. Yeah. You know, a, You should, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> I just wouldn't do that because I don't have that much time, you know. Bear in mind that I only have half the amount of time of other people mm. who don't have kids. So, you know, when I'm with my kid, I don't constantly want to be yeah. um, preoccupied. I want to be engaging with her. So, yeah, I mean, I think that those articles, they spark debate and that's great. And I'm more than happy to engage when people are polite Mm. and you can have some interesting conversations. But yeah, just saying, yeah, this routine is lazy. It's a bit kind of like, okay. No, I know what you mean. I I have a joke that I wrote 
two and a half years ago when I had a cat. Right. Uh, we, yeah, we were talking about before when I, when I had my cat. And yeah. Since then, I've started doing it for minutiae because it didn't fit into the one I'm doing at the moment. And uh-huh. someone saw me do it at a club and they said, do you know there's another comedian that's done something similar? And I Googled it and I found it and they have the same premise but a different joke. Right. And I was like, well, you know, how many people do, you know, men and women are different yeah, things, course, but they're, course, you know what I mean? I'm like, the premise can be, the, especially with one-liners, it's why I stopped doing one-liners, because the setups are all the same, it's t- the punchline yeah. is the interesting part. Yeah. And, and so I thought, well, I'm all right with that. And then, and then I, I went to image search, I can't remember why, and it turns out that, the, I don't know if it's their joke or my joke or whose joke, but, but there's a meme of that joke on the wow. internet. And that was what made me think, can I still use it? Because I don't want, you know what I mean? You don't want people, like the, the setup, I mean, is the meme. Not not the whole, obviously, because it's a three-minute joke. But it was like, it was a weird moment where I was like, I, of course I'm not going to know that. Like, I've not, why would I Google a three-minute, you know, what am I supposed to do, copy and paste the whole joke out and yeah. hope that it's not been transcribed into Reddit? You know, it's, <laughs> so I get what you mean by that. And it, and it is frustrating because you're like, it's monkeys with typewriters. You know, we're all going to come up with similar ideas, but is the joke unique? You know what I mean? Sure, sure, yeah. sure. Yeah. yeah. No, absolutely. I mean, I think that's one of the pitfalls of doing one-liners because you might either share the same premise or you might share the same payoff and it's not something that I feel comfortable doing because I would constantly worry, is this my joke? Whereas with songs, it's so easy because, you know, it would have to rhyme and the whole song would have to, you know. Yeah, <laughs> the, pre- so. the premise could be someone does a some, someone does a set about the same thing you do a song about, but there's just no way that it could be the same thing because it's just, it just wouldn't, it couldn't be. No. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, that makes sense. Absolutely. I wish I could play an instrument now. <laughs> do a cat joke on a piano. Okay, I'm going to do quick fire final questions. Okay. Um, the quick fire for me you take as long as you want to answer okay. so I was going to say what's the best book on comedy writing you've ever read but you said Save the Cat Save the Cat and you've already covered that so we'll move yep. on from that one <laughs> what is, well um, this is the other one what is the biggest mistake you've ever made and how did you get over it I'm presuming that was stopping for three years or is that a different mistake uh, no stopping for 13 years you mean no you stopped well you stopped. I, oh I didn't write yeah, I didn't write for three and a half turning up to the to over oh, three years yeah. over three years after I um, had my nervous breakdown well that was inevitable okay. so like you know mental illness is not something that you can kind of think your way out of or mm. you know it's, it's you know bloody impossible to kind of get up when you're shaking and you're yeah. kind of vomiting and all the rest of it so no my biggest mistake oh do you know what I don't actually regret anything because I really I'm really happy with the way that I write now and I don't think I would be able to write in the way that I do without all the life experiences I've had so I uh je ne regret rien god that sounded bloody pretentious I regret nothing you don't regret being pretentious four seconds ago yes (laughs) (laughs) I regret that that's my biggest mistake okay who is the most underrated person in the industry Ooh, John Fleming why? Because <laughs> he looks after your child when you want. <laughs> <laughs> he looks after my child when I want him to. He's given me some incredibly good advice. He's generous. He's kind. He's incredibly funny, um, and he's a downright lovely person. He is. I would back that up completely. He 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 has a podcast for this episode, but he, it's never coming out. Um, <laughs> what is uh, what do you think is the biggest problem in the industry, and how would you go about solving it? Oh, that's a good question. Thank you. The biggest problem in the industry, I suppose, I suppose it's the fact that uh, some people still think women aren't funny. And how I would go about solving it 
is give more opportunities to women and put two women on every panel show instead of just well you know that you, thing, yeah. you, but that's kind of a problem because you've got about seven men to every one woman but i think that's because women are not encouraged okay this is how i solve it basically when, wait, wait, we're not going to implement that like there's no I, way no. of me implementing it so, <laughs> so don't, don't feel pressure that everyone's listening going right let's get the pads out <laughs> I know, but, you know, I, I'm taking your question seriously, yeah, I Simon. I appreciate it. I've, but I just felt like I'd take the pressure off you a bit. Okay. okay. Well, basically, I think that women are not conditioned to be funny because it's not prioritized when you're growing up. Nurturing, you know, being nurturing and being a nice person is pri- prioritized. Whereas, you know, when you get into your teens, men have, you know, joke books that come with like men's magazines or articles saying, you know, the the 30 funniest chat-up lines or the, these the best jokes or this kind of thing. And women's magazines just don't have that. It's all like how to appeal to men and how to be sexy and how to be have get rock hard abs and all the rest of it so i would try and implement some sort of law that states that we should put kind of joke telling on the national curriculum and we should make that a priority for women and we should you know give loads more opportunities to women and comedy courses free comedy courses for women and yeah this is never going to happen and uh, <laughs> you you have to catch a train but anyway uh, yeah um last question what is the best bit of advice you've ever been given Ooh. okay well i think this might appeal to you okay so charlie brooker who okay. is if john fleming is the loveliest man then charlie brooker is the loveliest man that people have heard of <laughs> <laughs> I, I, well, I would say that's true just because Charlie is more well-known, but I think John's quite known. <laughs> oh, he is well-known in the industry, but not on the street. If, you, if oh, no. you walked up to your average person on the street and said, who is John Fleming? They would give you a strange look. They'd be like, I was just trying to go home about my day. Why are you, <laughs> why are you asking me about this? Go on. Yeah, but um, sorry. <laughs> so, yeah, he's the loveliest person in... Um, he's the loveliest celebrity, basically. Mm. Um, and he has helped me so much, helped me so much with my writing. And he... I said to him once, we came back from a party and I said to him, do you know, I just feel like I said loads of things wrong and that I said loads of stupid things and I feel like an idiot and I wish I hadn't said any of those things and I felt really self-conscious and he said... Well, to be honest, anybody who isn't insecure and doesn't have that sense that they might have said something wrong or done something wrong is generally a cunt. <laughs> <laughs> that makes me feel so much better about the conversation I had two days ago. Um, <laughs> like it. So, yeah, okay. so that's, um, that's a good bit, bit of advice. And we all make mistakes and God knows I've made my fair share. But I think the main thing is to kind of not regret them and to keep going. Awesome. Well, thank you very much for coming on. No problem. It's been an absolute pleasure and you've been wonderful. Thank you for having me. You're welcome. That was Ariane. I hope you got as much out of that as I did. I totally agreed with her philosophy on trying to wear as many different hats as possible and to try and be as versatile as possible, particularly as a writer. I think one of the main reasons I've had a day job as a joke writer for social media for nearly seven years has been because I've been able to change my writing style for several different voices and I really enjoyed hearing 
becoming the other side of that, essentially someone in TV doing what I do, which is essentially changing my voice to adjust to different types of shows and different types of characters and different characters within the shows. A big thing I've learned this year is I don't have to agree with someone to be friends with them, and if anything, differences of opinion can really result in some really fun chats and uh, refreshing your own opinions on different things. So to talk to her about her desire to become a pop star and mine to just want to have an ever-growing base of fans who like what I do but will only support me if they enjoy and value what I'm doing and not blindly just go with anything I do and say was really great and fun and really sort of reaffirmed what I want and I'm pretty sure she got a lot out of that as well. Speaking of supporting things if you get value out of them. See that seamless segue? That's right. Don't know why TV aren't beating a path to my door. Uh, did, did you enjoy this episode? Are you enjoying this podcast, this project in general? Here are some quick ways you can support the project. Please do pick one of them and do it. It, it helps maintain the thing that you enjoy and value. So if you could leave us a review on iTunes, please do. I've been told it helps with charts, but also it makes it look better for future guests, which, as I've mentioned several times, I'm getting bigger and better guests on all the time. But the only way that's going to continue is if they see that there is an active community who want to hear this kind of subject being spoken about. So please do that if you can. Um, join the Facebook group and take part in the discussions. Always sharing stuff in there, new content, exclusive content which guests are coming up next and you can ask your questions directly to them so if you want to and if you've been like oh, i really wish i'd asked her a question or i really wish i'd been told ahead of time so i could have prepared some questions that he could have taken to <laughs> guest x then that's the best place to do it please please just check it out in the group because it's better for me if it's all staying in one place you can share this or any episode that you've enjoyed on social media or directly with a mate to help expand the audience nothing sells a podcast quite like word of mouth and any way you can help out with that is great appreciated i i can't thank the people enough that do it all the time also the people that do it as a one-off if they find a particular episode particularly useful and want to plug it to a friend i recently tweeted that i was looking for new podcasts and a bunch of people uh, sent me screenshots of their podcast players and i was really humbled by the number of people who had my podcast subscribed both in terms of comedians and civilians uh, it was really nice. Um, I, I know that the base of listeners within an industry in this has pretty much got to a point where it's plateaued, but the audience continues to grow. And the interesting part for me about that is it's audience members and comedy fanatics who are listening to it now, which for me is amazing and exactly what I'd like to happen. But I, it's organically happening. But the only way it's going to continue to organically happen is if people who continue to value what I'm doing and continue to value the project share the pod. So please do consider consider doing that or you can donate by a paypal as a one-off donation to the project or you can become a patreon for as little as one dollar an episode that's 80p do you think what you listen to from me three times a month is worth 80p just to help me keep doing that do you, is it is it worth that if it is and you can afford it don't do it if you can't afford it i don't want anyone else going into debt for this project than me but if you can afford it i would highly appreciate the assistance and support because obviously i'm not back work to do this i take time away from my day job as a writer i take time away from stand up a bit to do this and and i obviously have to work around schedules of the guests and all that kind of stuff so if you're enjoying this and you want to see it continue please do consider donating pound for every episode if you like 10 episodes just bung me a tenner absolutely fine however much you think it's worth thank you very much for listening thank you very much for donating thank you very much for subscribing and i'll see you all in about 10 days time bye 
As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply.